morning, church. How you guys feeling this morning? You guys are the faithful that stayed on a long weekend, and I really, I really appreciate everybody that showed up. Uh, this weekend is Veterans Day weekend, um, and right now, do we have any veterans in, in the crowd right now? Any veterans by show of hands? Awesome. Would you mind standing up? Would you mind standing up? Thank you so much for your service in our country. Would you join me? Let's pray uh, for veterans this weekend. Lord, we thank you for the men and women who sacrifice so much for our country so that we can have church with the amount of freedom that we get to have it this morning, that we get to have the freedoms that we enjoy. Um, and Lord, we just pause and we pray for veterans that this weekend you would bless them in a very special way and remind them what an amazing thing that they've done for us in the younger generations that we get to enjoy the freedoms that we get. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So I have the privilege of introducing, we are starting a brand new sermon series called A Beautiful Heart. Um, and I was talking with David about it a, a few weeks ago before we launched. And it really is four aspects of a heart that Jesus loves, four aspects of a thing that brings uh, peace and wholeness in your life in a kingdom sort of way. And so we are launching that today, but we are launching with a guest speaker who is uh, part of a sister church of ours called Life Point Church, and his name is Nathan Bentley, and he's going to be kicking us off. So go ahead and greet him. Thanks. Whoa. I appreciate that's, that. That's a nice role there. So I quickly found out when I got here early this morning that all the men in your church apparently rolled their pant legs and as if they're attempt waiting for some sort of a flood or something. Even your esteemed worship leader, Jay Murphy, had done it. And so yes. I know it's been six years since I was a high school pastor, but if you don't mind, how am I doing? You look like you're ready for a flood, for Perfect. sure. He looks, re- he looks ready. I think I am both hip and cool now, and all of you college kids in here can get something from me. I'm, I'm, I'm pulling these down because that just looks ridiculous. Uh, thank Yeah, there we go. Everyone over 40, you're welcome. Uh, <laughs> my name's Nathan, and uh, we, we are, we're from the Brother Church, Sister Church, Brother Church, Life Point, and we're out there in Santan Valley, Queen Creek area. It's the fastest growing city in Arizona, one of the fastest growing cities in America, and it is truly crazy how many people are coming out there, many of them Californians. God still loves you if you're from California, I've been told, and so, uh, but there's so many of them, and uh, it's, it's getting full, it's getting really big out there, and so uh, we love it though, incredible time for the church, lots of new families and people moving out, it's a really great time. John 8, John chapter 8, grab a Bible, open it up, go ahead, I'll give you a minute. Whenever there's a guest speaker, you'll want to grab a Bible, because I could literally be making any of this up, and you'll just want to follow along to make sure that I haven't done that. Sometimes I do that to keep the people in Santan Valley on their toes. I'm not going to do that to you today, but just to be sure, John 8, John 8, verse 1 through 11 is what we're going to be looking at. And so as we kick this series off on the heart, I, I thought the title was fun because it's a beautiful heart is what Dave named it. And yet if you look at how the Bible talks about the heart, even Christ himself says 
For from the heart flow all wickedness, evil, malice, greed, sexual immorality, idolatry. Uh, Jeremiah the prophet says, from all evil, from the, uh, for from the heart all evil and wickedness flows. And so it's a little contrary to the idea of a beautiful heart. And that is the fact that before Christ, we do have this heart that generates sort of selfishness and pride and ego. And so we're kicking it off this morning with the idea of what does it mean to have a humble heart? Humility. Who doesn't love a little humility? Yeah, it's about like first service. Nobody's going to raise their hands. Who likes to be humbled by another human being? Right? Some, okay, three people enjoy being humbled. The rest of you all, the reason you don't like it is because humility goes in direct contrast to our nature. Our nature is pride. Our nature is self. Our nature is me. Our nature is comfort. Our nature is recognition for what we have done. And humility takes all that and says, no. And it strips it down and it says, what about others? What about others? Can we talk about me first? I just, I have so much to share and you should hear about it. Humility. Humility. So we're going to see the humility of Christ in this story that is told by the Apostle John in chapter 8, 1 through 11. So let's, I'm going to read it here and you can follow along, I think, on the screen. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and they sat down and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman who was caught in the act of adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, teacher, This woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now, what do you say? You see, they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, If any of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw the stone at her. Again, he stooped down. And wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. Jesus declared, Go now and sin no more. Would you bow your heads with me and pray? God, we need wisdom. We need your humility, your heart to come and shape and transform and mold ours into truly a beautiful heart. Help us to understand your humility and your virtue this morning. In Jesus' name. So there's this guy, Jonathan Edwards, right? Theologian, teacher, pastor, writer, all of that. He wrote a dissertation many years ago called The Nature of True Virtue, and in it he distinguishes between common virtue and true virtue. And so this morning I want to help us understand the true idea of humility so we can get past any sort of false humility or modesty. That's not what humility is. That's not what Christ is uh, exposing here. We're talking true virtue. Common virtue is where you become a more moral person. Who doesn't want to be more moral just for the sake of morality, right? You're good, you're generous, you're kind, you're civil, You're just a more moral person. And typically you become that way out of two factors, and those factors are fear and pride. You ever thought about it? 
As a child, did you listen to your parents? Probably because you were motivated by fear or pride. Fear of being in trouble, being grounded, spanked, had the car taken away, no dessert, go to bed early, right? All of the things, and you're like, well, I don't want any of that, so I'll be a good person. At school, you get detention or you get expelled or you, or you have punishments, and so you become a good little individual with morals in order to fit into what is called common virtue, that you can be a semi-productive member of society. And everyone thinks, well, there's a good person. But nothing in your heart has changed. Fear and pride have caused you to change, have caused you to sort of be this person because you realize I can get what I want out of life if I follow these rules and I avoid the punishments. Edwards says, then there's this other kind of virtue, and it's the virtue that comes from the Lord, and this virtue disintegrates or dissolves fear and pride. You actually become a virtuous person not because of fear and pride, but because fear and pride have been dissolved, and rather than bending you and breaking you into a moral person, it actually shapes and transforms you. It changes the very shape of your heart, the outflow of your heart, and it's called true virtue. It's a virtue that comes from knowing God, from knowing his son, Jesus Christ. And he reveals this character trait in us throughout his entire ministry. But it is so beautifully and wonderfully exampled before us here in the story of the woman caught in adultery. Because here's the thing with humility. I want to give you a different word for it, probably a word that maybe we even understand less than humility, but by the end of today, you'll have a clear idea of what it is. And it's the word meekness. Meek. Meek. (laughs) It's a funny word. Sounds like weak. And so often we associate meek and weak together. We think to be meek is to be weak. In Galatians 5, Paul catalogs the fruits of the Spirit for us. And he tells us they are joy, peace, patience, loving, kindness, all of this. And then down at the bottom is gentleness. You ever, been, you ever seen gentleness, gentlemen? You ever catch that? We're called gentlemen, but we're very non-gentle. Interesting. Gentleness. It's not a very good American translation, but if you look at old, older versions, the word is actually meekness and self-control. Meekness is a Greek word, and the Greek word is praus, and it is a term that was used typically to explain a wild animal that has been tamed, an animal with extreme power that subdues its power for the benefit of the rider. So an obvious example is a horse, right? If you can make a horse meek, you take this incredibly powerful, strong beast, and it now goes where you want to go, It stops when you want to stop. It climbs what you want to climb. You can put whatever you want on top of it, and it will just carry it. You put a bit in its mouth, and it subdues itself. It's still the same powerful animal, right? It hasn't lost any of its power. It still has all the power, but it has become meek for the benefit of the writer. That is meekness. And meekness encapsulates two primary characteristics that Jesus is wanting us to bring into ourselves that cause change. And that is gentleness and bravery. Gentleness and bravery. The two almost seem like uh, opposites, and yet Christ makes them come together to bring about a true virtue, 
a virtue that causes change, a virtue that the world will see and recognize it's not of this world because that's not how humans normally interact with one another. This is not of the world. Jesus says in Matthew 11, Come unto me, all who are weak and heavy laden. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Doesn't that sound amazing this morning? Wherever you're at in life, come to me, all who are weak and heavy laden. Come on. You'll find rest for your soul, for I am meek and lowly of heart. I am strong and powerful, all-powerful, and yet I have subdued my power for your benefit, that you might enjoy and become a part of me. Now, the problems with meekness and the reason we don't see this true virtue amongst the church as a whole, and maybe you're saying, well, now that's not fair. Okay. Um, I'm friends with some of you on Facebook, so I've gone ahead and taken some of your Facebook accounts, and I've posted what you've been posting. I'm just kidding. You'd never have me back. No, no, not that guy. He's a real jerk. Judgmental creep. Look at social media. Look at Americans. Look at Christians in the media. Look at what we're doing. There is not a gentleness and a bravery amongst our speech. How is that possible if we serve a true living God? If our life has been transformed, why are we not all gentle and brave? Why are we not meek of spirit? Why are we not humble people? Why do we not embrace humility now that we're sons and daughters of Jesus Christ? I'm going to let that question sit there for a second. The first is this. We don't have meekness in our lives. We don't have it. We know about it, but we don't have it. The second is we don't understand it. The truth of the matter is we don't understand the concept of meekness or how it works to be both gentle and brave or gentle and courageous and truthful. And the fact of the matter is Jesus is the inventor and the creator of taking opposites and putting them together. Like we look at grace and truth and we say, how can you have grace and truth? They sort of are opposites of another. If you have to give someone the truth, it's not always gracious and vice versa. And yet Jesus is the perfect balance of grace and truth. He's the perfect balance of gentleness and bravery. And this is what he exhibits here in this moment as he's teaching uh, these men, as he's teaching this group that is before him. And so what I want you to see here is what do we first learn about the characters of Jesus, the characteristic of Jesus' humility? Let's look at the first part of what we read here. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in the act of adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What do you say? And in this moment, Jesus bends down and begins to write in the dirt with his finger. So here's what we learn. Twice this phrase is taken. She was caught, taken in adultery. She was taken in adultery. To understand this and to really understand what's going on here, we have to understand Mosaic law. And we have to understand why that this is so important. So here's Jesus teaching to a similar crowd like this, right? Maybe smaller, maybe bigger. But he's teaching. And up come these other, picture the pastors coming up here and bringing this woman. And challenging him in front of everybody. And saying, 
we actually caught her in the act of adultery. Moses' law says she has to be stoned for this. What do you say? You see, they were sick of all of his grace talk, all of his gentleness. They were sick of it, that he would hang out with prostitutes and tax collectors and drunkards and fornicators. And they said, we're going to show that this guy either doesn't actually follow Moses' law or he's not as gracious as he's pretending to be because he's going to have to bring the judgment down on her or he's going to have to skirt around the law, in which case, either way, no matter what he does, he is trapped. Do you see what's going on here? So here's the thing with Mosaic law. Mosaic law says that in order to bring somebody to judgment and effectively uh, uh, prosecute and convict of the crime and then punish of the crime, which was being stoned to death, you can find this in Leviticus, you had to catch the person in the act, which is why in that time, there were very, very, very few actual people who were stoned to death for adultery. Because unlike our law today, probability wasn't good enough. You see, the law of Moses was very strict, was it not? People are stoned to death for all sorts of things. We like to look at it now and make fun of it and say, oh, that's so ridiculous. I'm glad we're so civilized now. But the fact is, it wasn't just strict. It was also incredibly just. Because you couldn't just claim that somebody had committed adultery because you saw them in the same bed or you watched them walk out of the same room. You had to see the physical act. And then you couldn't be alone. There had to be two witnesses who saw the act as well. So, because of this stringent justice, not oftentimes this kind of law was never upheld because it was virtually impossible, for obvious reasons, to catch somebody in this type of thing with two witnesses who could bring them before a court and have them judged. So, Jesus, here we are. We found one. And this works out so good for us. Can you imagine them? This works out so good for us. Here you are teaching we're about to expose you as the heretic that you are. You're either going to destroy her or you're going to destroy God's law. Either way, we're going to win. But I want you to see Jesus' blending of gentleness and courage. We see it throughout Scripture. We see it with, G- with Judas on the night that he was betrayed. Do you remember this story? When Jesus washes the disciples' feet? He doesn't wash 11 of the 12. He washes all 12. He washes Judas' feet moments before he is to betray him. The kindness it took, the gentleness. And then the disciples go with him to pray and they fall asleep and he walks back out to him and he says, the spirit is willing but the flesh is weak. The gentleness. But there's truth still there. And then Peter, I won't deny you, Lord. I'll stand strong. Oh, poor Peter. Peter, you're going to deny me three times. And so what's he say? He says, Simon, Simon. When he says his name twice like that, it is a sign of affection and love. Simon, Simon, if only you knew. So how do you take gentleness and combine it with truth in such a way that allows the humility and your power to still both be on display without tearing down the other person? And this is what we all need help in. Would you agree? especially as Americans. We sort of have a double dose because we don't live under the oppression of poverty. I got to meet with a pastor and his wife from Haiti this week. Uh, it's one of the missions that we support and we send medical teams out there from LifePoint. 
And he and his wife were up here with, uh, meeting with their board. It's uh, Haitian Christian Ministries. And uh, we got, I got to just hear his heart. and how, If you know anything about Haiti right now, there's incredible political unrest. They can't get gasoline into the country. The leadership is pretty corrupt, and so the people are really, really struggling, even more than they are when, there's, when this isn't going on. And so you got to hear about the oppression of poverty. And I told him, I said, you know, we have an oppression here as well, but it's the oppression of affluence. I said, it's different. You see, we have so much that we don't need Jesus. We have everything handed to us and given to us. We're the best country in the world. We have the brightest people. We have the best resources. We don't really need Jesus. Jesus is sort of like an afterthought or when we get sick or when the doctors can't figure out what to do, then we turn to him. I said, oh, don't get me wrong. It's certainly an oppression. It's just a lot different than the oppression of poverty. And so here's Jesus. How how is he going to bring an American Christian to a place that says, Lord, I humble myself before you. And because I humble myself before you, I humble myself before my neighbor. I put their needs ahead of my own. You see, Jesus didn't lose his greatness, did he? He said, I can command angels right now to come down and take care of this. Do you not think that I have an army waiting at my very word that could wipe these men out? No, that's not what's going to happen. He has all the power, all the glory, but he's not exercising it. He has put it under, he has submitted it for your benefit, for the woman caught in adultery's benefit, and even, yes, especially for the Pharisees' benefit. Do you see that? Meekness, incredible power submitted for the benefit of another. Look at Moses. In the Old Testament, uh, Numbers 12, verse 3, it says, Moses was the meekest man on the face of the earth. And this man is going to go into Pharaoh, who's the most powerful man on earth at the time. He's going to say, I want you to let your entire slave labor force go. Sort of the backbone of why you are the most powerful civilization right now. You're going to let them all go. You're going to let them go now. And also, those who are in your military, you're going to let all of them go too. And you're not going to come after us for any sort of payback. What? (laughs) Just like let that sink in. That's what he did. He went in and asked for that, told him what was going to happen. That takes incredible courage and incredible gentleness to be able to walk into a dictator like that, tell him how it's going to work, and then actually have him do it. I mean, there was some persuasion by the Lord, but, you know, a few, a few uh, mir- uh, plagues, thank you. That certainly will change anyone's mind. I am the Lord of heaven and earth. I watched Satan fall from, hell, from heaven like lightning. Before Abraham was, I am, I am the judge of all the earth. I forgive your sins. Jesus is fully powerful. He is fully God. There was never a moment he wasn't. He didn't become God when he was baptized. He didn't become God when he was raised from the dead. He didn't become God because at some point the Father created him. He was and is and always will be God from the beginning. And here he's teaching us and showing us this humility. You see, oftentimes when we feel inferior, what do we do? We act superior. It helps us feel better. So usually whenever you see that guy or that woman who walks around and like that, don't walk like this. If you leave here walking like this today, everyone's going to look at you. 
They're usually pretty inferior people on the inside. They just need everyone else to see how powerful and strong they are, right? That's why if you see a guy driving a lifted truck, Now I can say that because I have a lifted truck, so you, so you can see uh, I'm compensating, so I feel inferior. Jesus knew he was superior. Jesus knew he was superior. There is no doubt. You see, often we look at humility and we, and we confuse it with what's called false humility, where it's, oh, I'm nothing, I'm nothing, stop it, stop it, come on, stop, stop laughing at my jokes, oh. It's false humility. No, I'm nothing. Yes, no, Jesus knew he was something. Jesus never forgot that he was God. Jesus never forgot the power that was available to him. But he placed it under and he submitted it, all of his glory, all of his power, for the interest of you and me. That is true virtue. That is the humility that changes that heart from that place that flows all wickedness to a place that flows the love of Christ. And friends, if you are a Christ follower in here today, that is what you are seeking after daily. Lord, I want a heart like that. I need that kind of humility. I need that true virtue. So here's how we're going to close. How do you get it? How do we get this kind of humility? Well, let's look at this. After it says he gets up from doodling in the dirt, <laughs> he's drawing in the dirt. We don't know what he was drawing. There's lots of, I'm going to actually say something here. I didn't say first service that I think is kind of cool that the Lord showed me, and it's not going to, it's not theologically astute or anything, but so he's down there. He gets up from the dirt and he says, if any of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw the stone at her. At this, those who heard begin to go away one at a time. The older ones first until all that was left was the woman still standing there. And Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Now, this is fantastic. This is unbelievable. And this is the part of the story that is my favorite part because we get to delve into the culture and we get to see his power on full display. We get to see his gentleness and his courage and his knowledge just blasted out there for all to see. And so here they are. They bring this woman. I've already explained the law, so we know that they literally caught her in the act. They bring her with all the pride and the pomp and the circumstance of here she is, go ahead, you are trapped. And Jesus says, okay, you want to use the Mosaic law? I will use the Mosaic law. I happen to know the Mosaic law pretty well. I, I gave it to you. So here you go. In the Mosaic law, it states that if you are the one who brings someone to be executed for violating the law, you also have to be the executioner. Did you know that? You couldn't just pass her off to somebody else to do the dirty work. No, you also have to be the executioner. Also, if we're going to use the Mosaic law, I'd like to remind you that in Deuteronomy 13 and Deuteronomy 7, you yourself cannot be somebody who is guilty of the same sin. So go ahead, throw the stone. Now I want you to see something. Because not only do they now realize that he has just quoted the law back to them, but the law also states that a judge who shows partiality is to be executed. Where is the man in this adultery? 
Where's the man? It takes two to tango. I, so, right? So they just brought the woman. They just brought her, and somehow the man is in on trial, and they placed her. And so Jesus is saying, okay, let's, let's follow the law. Because right now, you're bringing a false accusation and your impartial judges by not bringing the man here as well. So as soon as you throw that first stone at her, I will cite the law of Moses back to you. And every single one of you will be condemned to death because you didn't bring the man. Or you yourself are guilty of this same exact sin. See, whenever the Bible takes a moment to say something like the older ones left first, that for me is like I get all giddy. I'm like, why in the world did it say that? And so when you study it, you realize that they're the ones who are like, oh, gee, I'm, mm-hmm. I see what he did there. <laughs> Guys, we forgot to bring Bob. <laughs> Remember we told Bob to do this thing and then he did it and then we said we could let him go. We forgot to bring Bob and Jesus knows the law. He sees what we did here. We can't throw a stone or he's going to kill us and he's going to be justified in doing so. You see, Jesus completely 100% honored the law. I will honor the law that you cite. And I will speak against these false ways that you represent it. And I will speak against the way you have added your own laws to my father's laws. In order to keep people enslaved and entrapped in their own sin and make yourself look better. And I'm going to wipe it out. But Jesus didn't come at them like I just said it. He came at them very gently. So here's the part that I felt like as I was just sitting there singing songs this time. I was like, I wonder if what he was writing in the stand was the reference to that section in, was it Leviticus or Deuteronomy? Deuteronomy 13. I wonder if he was writing in Aramaic or Greek that reference, and as those men saw him writing it in the sand, they were going, let's see a false, oh boy. And they begin to recognize what was happening. You see, this is the gentleness of the Lord, and this is absolutely vital that you see this. The order in which he says to the woman, go and sin no more and I do not condemn thee. He says first, neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. If he would have said, go and sin no more, and then I will neither condemn thee, then that would mean that her righteousness, her justification, her penalty would be based on whether or not she could do good or not. Whether or not she would go and sin again. But Jesus doesn't say that. He says... I do not condemn thee. Go and leave your life of sin. You see, he doesn't, he's not a coward and he doesn't call what she was doing a choice. He says, no, it was sin. You know it and I know it. We both know what you were doing was sin. So he calls the sin a sin, but he says to her, neither do I condemn thee. Now, how can he say that? Well, because... Jesus is going to take all of the condemnation upon himself. Jesus Christ is going to take every stone upon himself, which is why Paul tells us in Romans, therefore there is no no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He took the penalty. He overcame sin and death. He defeated it and rose again so that you and I could walk in a victory, could walk in a humility and a kindness and a bravery that other people would see and say, I can't do that. How are you doing that? 
How are you exhibiting joy in trials? How are you exhibiting kindness when someone else is just spewing venom at you? How do you forgive somebody who has hurt you so badly? Let me tell you, his name is Jesus Christ. And he has taken me from someone who has tried to be a common, virtuous person into a true virtue where he has changed my heart for people and for who he is. Friends, that's the message of the gospel. Without it, without that heart change, we're just sort of playing Christianity. We're Christians by uh, identity, by what we by label. But if we aren't living out this humility, this meekness that He has called us to, then, then what are we doing? You see. I, I doubt, highly doubt, that the woman really understood what Jesus was doing for her in that moment. I'm, I'm positive she couldn't have possibly understood that he was ready to go to the cross, die, and raise again. But here's the other crazy thing, and this is why I think what he was writing in the sand may have been the locations of those laws, of Mosaic law, is because we know that this is a firsthand account witness given. And it would make sense that it says that he went down and just began to draw something in the sand. Whereas if it was one of the disciples who was giving this account of what had happened, they would have known what he was drawing in the sand and they would have told us, but she would have just been like, yeah, he just started drawing something in the sand. But we know that, they, that she came and gave this testimony, which means because of the grace and the gentleness of God, I believe she came and became a believer. How many of you came to Christ because you recognized his mercy on your life? How many of you are here this morning because you recognize the gentleness and the courage of what it means to have the truth shared with you? Where are your accusers? Does no one condemn you? No, Lord, none. Then neither do I. I'm going to call the band out and we're closing and here's the thing. Most of us have things in our life that accuse us. We have sins, we have pasts, we have actions, we have thoughts that accuse us on a daily basis. You can't lead that small group. Who are you to pray with your kid? Who are you to tell this person they're not living right? I know what you've done. I know you. And those thoughts come and they accuse us. And they remind us of our sin, and they keep us tied and bound up in bondage. That is not of the Lord. You hear me this morning? That is not of the Lord. He does not accuse us. He says, come to me. Take my yoke. It is light, and it is easy, for I am meek and lowly of heart. Come and see. If you're here this morning and those accusations are loud in your head, I encourage you, I think they'll have prayer partners up here at the front or you can catch someone in the back. But just share with somebody the thing that it is and say, God, take this today. Help me to have this heart, this this change of heart. I don't want to be a good Christian for the label of a good Christian. I don't need to be a good Christian to get into heaven. I I need a changed heart, God. Let's pray. Father, Lord, it's a supernatural work you do in us. There's nothing normal about it, God. It is divine and it is beautiful. 
because you take something full of wickedness and deceit and brokenness and you turn us, God, into new creatures. You turn us into your sons and daughters. The King of kings, the Lord of lords. Lord, this world wants to look at you and they want to condemn you and say that you're a bigot and you're small-minded and that those who follow you are. But Lord, if they could only see, if they could only see how much you love them, how gentle you've been with them, how kind. God, help us not be blind to it. Help us to see it. We praise the name of Jesus in this place. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. I think we will have prayer partners up front. If you want to come forward while we close in worship, please do so.